Hey everyone, welcome to the U Experts podcast. Uh, I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined alongside Epi Risho, um, as well as a, a, a special guest. So, Epi, how are you? Special. Uh, yes, I'm great. Up, guys? Great, great. And this is Jeremy Miller. Jeremy, uh, hello, hello. What's up, everybody? How's it going? Thanks for having me. I am. I'm super excited to uh, to be a guest on uh, on your show. Well, and not only a guest, but I guess we're a guest on your show. So yeah, this is a, an experiment we're trying. We're, we're going to do a crossover outside of, <laughs> completely outside of the comfort zone on this one. Well, and, and, and tell us, Jeremy. Uh, so our listeners know we do. Jason and I do kind of a, a banter discussion mm -hmm. of topics and in, in UX and leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you tell our listeners about your show? Yeah, what's up, y'all? So if you haven't heard Beyond UX Design before, which uh, the chances are good you haven't. According to my download of statistics, uh, the chances are very good you've never listened to the show. Uh, so my name is Jeremy. I'm the, the host of uh, the Beyond UX Design podcast, and everybody listening on my side would have known me. Uh, right. But I host uh, Beyond UX Design. We do uh, weekly episodes, interviews with all kinds of people like uh, Tom Griever from Articulating Design Decisions. <laughs> uh, we just talked to... Um, some awesome folks. I got Dan Maul coming on the show soon, talking about design systems. We got all kinds of awesome people, um, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, to get this chance to talk to you guys about this stuff today. I'm stoked. Yeah, Thanks absolutely. And I guess for your audience, um, we don't have nearly the impressive guest list. Uh, it's often just uh, Effie <laughs> myself. Uh, we're both we're both uh, currently residing in the Bozeman, Montana area, and yeah, as Effie mentioned, you know, our core focus is. You know the lessons learned around UX leadership and design practice, um, really in the in the enterprise space. So, um, you know, we'll check out the description for both you know Jeremy's podcast as well as how to find us. And you know, I I think this is you know not only fun to do, but you know when I met Jeremy on LinkedIn, like right out of the gates, I was like, wow, this is like a super good dude. Um, he you know wants to help. Likewise. And yeah, and it's like you know we're not competing because we're actually doing really two very different things. Absolutely. In the same space of yeah. user experience. So now you you actually did a really great job of explaining what your show is about. <laughs> I did a very poor job of explaining what my show is about. No, it's all right. I don't care. We uh yeah. So beyond UX, the reason why it's called Beyond UX is the idea is you're you're more than a designer because there's more to UX than design. So it's everything beyond the pixels and the prototypes and all that stuff. Focusing a lot on soft skills and things of that nature. Really speaking a lot to junior designers, career shifters, young younger professionals, people who haven't really been in the industry that long. So it's we got a nice little yin and yang here going. I got the younger mm -hmm. folks, you got the veterans. So it's uh it's awesome to to get get a chance to come together. I'm I'm excited. Probably we're gonna be an effective triad for today's conversation mm -hmm. because right. uh you know we are doing this remote, so please be patient. Hopefully we'll do one in you know together and. And I, I will just maybe spoiler alert. I know Jeremy and I have been talking about, you know, further extending the UX podcast network. And I'm just going to leave it at that because it was your idea. But uh, excited yeah. to talk with other professionals. I mean, it's I, awesome. I, I need to follow up with that, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm not, uh, I actually have talked to a bunch of people. Like a, what's that? It's it's it is recording. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, anyway, we're, we're working on a little network thing where, We've got a bunch of podcasters all come together and we cross promote and and things like that and all in the design space. So, you know, the idea is if, if my listeners can hear you and your listeners hear me and and everyone else who, who we're talking to and stuff. So anyway, I um I needed I, I kind of dropped the ball getting laid off a couple of weeks ago, kind of put a hamper on a lot of things I was working on, but a, a damper on a lot of things I was working on. Um, maybe, maybe, 
Maybe so, we'll yeah. talk about that as a part of our... our oh, it's something for sure going to come up. Uh, <laughs> It'll come up. There's a there's an article that comes out at the end of every year, and our topic uh, today is about that, and it's about the UX trends. There's a, a website called uxdesign.cc, and there's a um, there's a basically the State of UX in 2024 article, mm-hmm. which I always enjoy reading every year. And so this year, it was all the same, and we thought, hey, let's let's get a bunch of UX brains to to think about this yeah, topic and have a discussion about it. They, they broke it into five categories. So that's how we're going to structure our podcast today. We're going to dig into each of these five categories and see what. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this did come from you, Abby. You had said this over to me originally. And, and then again, with my conversations on, online with Jeremy, um, obviously both of us with a little bit of free time on our hands. Uh, you know, really, really interesting. And I guess the first thing that would stand out to me, and we can come back and talk about that this later. It's all, I think it's always very easy to say, here's what I think is going to be coming up, but you know, I would really like to do something where we would look back at maybe the end of Mm. next year and say, of these five things, which we're not promoting or discrediting, which of these actually came true? Because um, I, I, I will say as someone who read this article, my first glance was I, I felt, um, um, maybe a little more negative than, than how Jeremy felt or, or maybe some of the things uh, you took away. I, I thought, well, maybe not you know, sort of a negative bet. I thought it was a little demoralized, like, like, oh man, look, look at you. That guy's falling. It's falling apart. It's totally different. But I didn't, I don't, I, I read everything with a hat and gla- glass half full. So I didn't actually, yeah. I saw the silver lining within every, right. Yeah, same here. But is the same for you, Jeremy? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was obviously, I mean, and, and this is funny, Jason, because you mentioned yeah. uh, the noise and, and how much of the noise is, is reality. And it's interesting because if you if you believe the noise to be reality, mm. then this rings true. If the, if you're not seeing some of the things that, that, you know, you hear people talk about, especially in a place like LinkedIn, which really, let's be honest, is somewhat of a, a little, you know, echo chamber. Really. It's, it's a, a few, a few loud voices and a bunch of people that follow those very small in the grand scheme of things of maybe a hundred content creators, uh, maybe 200, barely, you know, even that, which, you know, in reality is how many people out of the pool of UX professionals across the world. Absolutely. And, and honestly, I wish it wasn't my current job to spend as much time on LinkedIn as I think. <laughs> so, yeah, well said. Okay. So Jeremy's going to take the stance of there is no spoon. Uh, reality is where, you know, we're making it. I'm reading it like, oh my gosh, you know, a lot of signal to noise. Epi's got his perspective. And I, I, I will say, I will compliment the authors who we do not know and we're not promoting. You can check the link and, and read this article for yourself. And yeah, then, you know, the great article. disprove whether or not you think I'm full of crap or anyone else on this uh, yeah. podcast. But, but you know, obviously the big thing that they come out with right now on topic number one is they, they begin with the topic of, of automation. And by automation, you know, AI, they're, they're talking about AI, which is obviously a buzz buzzword right now. I think every company is racing to figure out what this means from an engineering implication. And obviously that has incredible UX implications. Right. Well, I'll, I'll just read their, their, their sentence there on it and we can discuss around it. It says AI is streamlining the work of designers within large organizations while eliminating the need for designers altogether in lower stakes position projects, which I think is completely actually valid sentence. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, examples. Like, are, are we actually replacing designers altogether in lower stakes projects? Yeah, you've got Canva. I mean, when I when I 
send out an invitation now. I don't, I'm a designer. I did graphic design for over a decade. I don't come up with a new design anymore. I just go to Canva, okay. find one that looks adequate and go, I'm using this one. I can update the text fields instantly by clicking on it. I can even change the font or whatever and boom, send it as a screenshot text to everybody. It's like, it's instant. So like, you know, you've got Wix, uh, the, the examples they have are Wix, Squarespace, Canva, and Vado. And I think there's more. I mean, there's just really easy, there's a ton, for sure. easy self-serve design platforms that are now more increasingly AI-driven yeah. to make design really easy for the low-stake stuff. Yeah, it's great. I love it, personally. <laughs> right. I mean, what, what do you see, Jeremy? Are you, yeah, you well, I think this is this is sort of something I, I've been seeing, I think, for a while where, you know, regardless of stakes, high stakes, low stakes, I think the fact is that at some point in the future, maybe this year, maybe five years from now, yeah. AI is going to be able to recreate an interface pretty goddamn quick. Yeah. And the chances are good that if you're you're not part of that problem solving piece, you're not part of that discovery piece, the research, the strategy you're you're probably out of luck because at some point maybe maybe next year <clears throat> maybe 2024 maybe 2030 i don't know at some point a robot's going to be able to just like crank out a wireframe and probably code it at the same time sure. so you know but what it won't be able to do it won't be able to to understand the requirements it won't be able to do the discovery talk to people understand the needs the problems the pain points someone still has to feed that in to the, AI. the human element exactly you know, and I don't even know any time in the future when a robot would be able to actually have a conversation with a human and get realistic, have a realistic conversation. I mean, maybe a hundred years from now, humans will yeah. evolve to be comfortable <laughs> talking to an android like a data from Star Trek or something. But that that probably won't be happening anytime soon, at least in our lifetime, I don't think. No, so I think it is. I think it is that 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 visual piece. The and I think they mentioned in the article specifically graphic designers. I think that's originally kind of. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some of the new tools that uh, Adobe has released around, I mean, and they're mass marketing this, like on my TV to my children, what they oh, could wow. do Photoshop, you know, to enhance, wow. you know, I'm thinking about the one girl who's like, I want a castle and a unicorn. And it's like her birthday invite. I'm like, wow, there just went that huge contract that I'm no longer going to get because she just did this in a 30 second commercial. Yeah. I think what is interesting about, you know, Epi, you were totally correct in what you said, but in the sense that it streamlined your work, it didn't eliminate you. No. It just allowed you to get your task done faster and then move on to the next thing. And, and in terms of speaking, like Jeremy said, about the actual interfacing with a robot, you know, we're, we're doing that today. Do the, the prompt engineering of ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. And, you know, spoiler alert, today we're recording this before the GPT marketplace is effective. Um, if you're just like blank copy-pasting what it gives you, um, you're going to look fairly silly because especially in the echo chamber of our hangout LinkedIn, you know, people are getting called out for that pretty quickly. Like yeah. you, you didn't even read what you are posting right now. Exactly. So it it is definitely the early days, but I, again, I don't think it's eliminating. I, I think you still are going to need that human contact that Jeremy's mentioning. Well, I think, you know, I think the, you know, the key thing that we constantly deal with in the software industry is the fight of trying to get outcomes over outputs, right? And yeah. that's 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 the, the series that we just finished, you know, along five parts, we kept talking about outcomes over outputs. And, you know, an output, it's like, hey, I shot 70 arrows in, in a minute. 
you know, but the outcome is, hey, I, I shot a single arrow and it was a bullseye. Yeah. And I think right now, anyway, AI is doing outputs over outcomes. They're not, they're not actually going through and saying, what is the true deep need here? What is the flow? They're just saying, here's a design based on other designs we've seen. And well, let's come up with this and Hey, what do you think? And, and, it, you know, for, for what I, like I said, for like low stakes projects, a lot of times that's a hundred percent fine. Sure. Like it's not necessarily the design I would have come up with and maybe my design would have been better, but like at the end of the day, I don't care because it's low stakes. And where, where, where I do care is high stakes. Like when we're talking about millions of dollars on the line, there's no way I'm going to trust a robot to come up with that. I'm going to do my research. Like you said, Jeremy, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to make sure that we talk to users that we pinpoint what is the real problem we're solving and let's go through the true journey map of what the user needs to do and make sure that we've got that UX nailed down before we get to the UI. Yeah. One of the things that I think about too here is, is again, thinking about that perception. It I don't know that it matters if AI can't replace an actual human. What matters more is if the CEOs at the top think it will. Yeah. And those yeah, are the people who are making the decisions to lay people off. It's usually not the middle managers who say, uh-huh. I, I know for a fact that I can replace Effie because Jason can do the double the work now. That's not it's not the middle manager laying people off. It's some jackass at the top who probably has no idea what's actually going on, who thinks that AI can replace a person. Right. And, you know, that's something that's uh, I think is happening more and more. I'm not saying that CEOs are laying people off to replace them with AI, but I do think that there's a lot of misinformation around what AI can actually do because it's not nearly as smart as the marketing makes it out to be, <laughs> you know? It's a simple fact, like you can't copy and paste because it's it's not that smart. You know, so I will say that there's no designer that should be replaced by AI yet. But I mean, I'm not on this, not on this podcast. No, no. But (laughs) but but I I I mean, I I read this article about this guy completely unapologetically saying, "Yeah, I replaced all but one of my CS department, my customer service department, yeah, with (laughs) AI chats because he said he found out time and again they were giving you know." More accurate responses, and they were eighty percent faster. Mm-hmm. And interesting. Why do I need these low-paid people to do this job when an AI will do this? Because all the AI was doing was going through, and they weren't using anything else from the internet. They were just using his his resource, yep. his 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 instruction manual, all that stuff, and going through all the FAQs and help. And they were responding. And escalating things to mm-hmm. if it needed to, but most of the time it was all dealt with. And so, yeah, it was like, why would I go back? And I'm like, okay, so that is an example to me where AI will replace a real person. And I think yeah. there's, so I, I, well, I, yeah, I think it depends on the role, right? I think like in that case where often, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that customer support people are robots, but often they're they're, they're just do a checklist. They're they're looking at a book and they're. What is the step one, step two? Oh, I can't help you. Let me transfer you to the next level two support. You know, I, and I guess what, I, what I'm thinking is more like an actual UX designer doing doing a lot of the work that we would do, right? And I, I think I don't see AI replacing a UX designer. And no. least I'll, I'll, I'll clarify that. I think it will replace people. I don't know that it'll replace UX designers necessarily. And again, AI might try to replace because someone laid them off. But I don't know that when in the end, the outcome, I don't know, will be, it, it certainly won't be better. That's my. Yeah, I think the elimination argument, I I, I think, yeah, the, the streamlining of that work, 
Because even today, there are GBT prompts that will will output, you know, Twitter bootstrap-like interfaces, but you're not going to be market-ready. You just got to... We still got to refine it. Yeah, starting you, you've got a, you know, hello world example. And, and I think the one, you know, you mentioned graphic designers being replaced, and obviously... I've used Midjourney several times. Um, I've seen some great examples. I, I've actually never been able to get a client to, to buy one of them outside of you know something else they would want to do. <laughs> uh, I think the one industry that's going to be very safe going into, at minimum, the next 18 to 24 months, based on what you said, Jeremy, was the human element of research and strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, you know, I don't think you're going to have ChatGPT or something like it running a heuristic test or yeah. dealing with the variables that come with imperfect humans. Mm -hmm. now, now I will call out that this, I was quite disappointed in this section because they, I feel like missed the whole boat really of what we should be talking about with AI and UX. What should we be talking about? Well, the opportunities to transform our products with AI. So like that is to me the most exciting kind of like, pioneering area of UX right now. And they didn't even talk about it. Like, so you think about any semi-complex to really complex problem you're trying to solve with UX and AI could and should and will, will eventually from somebody, if it's not you, it's going to be your competitor. It's going to come up with a solution where AI is going to make that better, faster, stronger, come up with more accurate results mm -hmm. uh, with, with less time. And people are, more and more increasingly open to that. So like, for example, let's say you have a job where you get a hundred emails a day and you've got to sit through them all and prioritize things. Mm -hmm. Like an AI could do that, right? An AI could go, this this one here, deal with this one first. This is incredibly urgent. This person's going to fire you if you know they're going to drop you as a customer or whatever, and you mm -hmm. don't deal with them in the next two hours. Great, you've just prioritized my email. I mean, this is a random example, but I'm just throwing stuff out. Or, or let's say you've got, you know, a form, or you've got like, let's say five forms with all this data in it. And it's like, can you just quickly give me a summary of this account or whatever it is? Um, tell me the value of this property this person was, uh, you know, looking at right now. Mm -hmm. Like, like all that stuff that would take somebody, you know, five, 23 hours, even like however many minutes or hours. I mean, that can just be done instantly with AI. So like we need as designers to be thinking about how to use AI in our designs, how to use that in our approach. I think that's the biggest, I can't even believe they didn't talk about that because that's exciting. Yeah. It, uh, one of the, the direct parallel that I see here is with manufacturing and when robots took over, you know, the assembly line, Ford or Chevy, you know, car manufacturing. Sure. You know, one day you had a hundred people turning wrenches, putting a car together. The next day they're replaced by robots. And you think like, okay, a hundred people lost their job. But at the same time, now you have to have a team to maintain the robots. You have to have a maintain a team to make, to create the robots. You have to have a team to program the robots, fix them when they're broken, you know, keep an eye on them to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do. So there's jobs that are created. It might not be as many jobs. Yeah. It might be more specialized and it might require a higher level of, of education, but there are more jobs. There are, well, sorry, I'll, I'll say the, the, the robots are being repla or replacing humans, but there are other jobs created when that happens. Exactly. And yeah. so it might not be the exact same people. You might not go from turning a wrench on the assembly line to go maintaining a robot, 
but you know there are the thing is that there are opportunities there which to your point i i think is what you're you know the, what you're saying it's like if if you want to not be replaced figure out where that skill set what skill sets needed and where it can be applied yeah so you do well, yeah, and, and, and ultimately, a great example of uh, mass production of, of something like an automobile, you know, you still have a human touching the vehicle, testing the vehicle, and, and right. you know, checking the box to make sure that maybe some of the, you know, more more automated things could be could be addressed. So, yeah. super good example. Well, I, yeah, I've got another example I want to give. Actually, I was saving this one at some point during the podcast. I knew it was going to come up. Uh, really, <laughs> one out of five, you're going to drop. You're going to. Uh, well, it's going to drop my money drop moment. Okay. Well, because ever people, I think, inherently fear change and fear innovation, and and like what you're saying is like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose all these jobs. They think of jobs, right? So the uh, the example I'm pulling out is from a free economics podcast from quite a few years ago called "How Safe Is Your Job," and they were looking at the piano making industry, which is. Mm. I have a funny thing. And when at the peak of piano making in America in 1905, there were 400,000, like over 400,000 pianos made, right? Mm. And then uh, basically you got the the record player came mm. out. And then soon after you had radio. And by the, um, and then by, so basically by within 10 years, piano making was just like boom, it was plummeting. Like nobody's people, buying piano. Nobody's buying piano. Who wants to listen to piano anymore from Uncle Ned, who sucks? If you can actually put on your favorite record, of- it could be Elton John. <laughs> yeah, that's well, a good piano. Elton John still has a piano. They're still making pianos. <laughs> yeah, but but so like, and then you know, piano sales plummeted. They went from like you know hundreds of millions of dollars to or no, no, sorry, their total per year was fifty six million dollars. They would sell in pianos, and. That basically plummeted to almost nothing. But then when you look at record, just record player sales in 1919, five years, like whatever, 14 years later, $158 million and just in record player sales, let alone now the new, the whole new music industry. And if you think yeah. about now the music industry, you're like thinking, uh, I mean, this was, this is a few years dated, but more than 200,000 Americans today work in radio and TV broadcasting, another 300,000 in motion picture and sound recording. Nearly a hundred thousand in electronic equipment repair and maintenance, and then of course all the people who are like paying for all this stuff, paying for all the, the players who play the music. So just thinking about it, it's like, oh, we've lost all these, we've lost this art and these piano makers, and this is terrible. And it's like, well, there's there's something to be said. Yeah, I can. What you're saying well, now, they might be installing like the radio towers that are broadcasting the pre-recordings of that particular. Or maybe they, they they've now you know. Done something else within the music industry. The music industry is now this incredibly massive, multi-billion-dollar mm-hmm. industry now, which it wasn't before when they were making pianos. And I, it's I just I remember that one. I I did my digging on the internet to remember the source because <laughs> it it just it stuck with me all these years now. Going people fear innovation, but it's just because changes you just don't know what it's going to bring. Well, of course, it's uncertain. You know, you know what's interesting about that too, though, is it affects the supply and demand of the people who want the jobs making pianos, right? The The demand plummets, right? Mm-hmm. When the demand plummets, if there's oversupply, it takes a little while for the market to correct, but eventually you get back to equilibrium, mm-hmm. right? And so eventually you get, and I I, I, I had a, like a background in economics, so like hey, this stuff, nerd, I love this stuff. 
but um, you get you get back down to like a supply and a demand. It comes back to equilibrium, and eventually, what you end up with is highly skilled labor laborers who can charge exponentially more for their for their labor. Right. Right. So those people that are making pianos or fixing pianos in 1975 are highly highly sought after. Right. Right. So you can then charge an insane amount of money versus the guy in 1924 who probably was making pennies. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a hundred the silver. Exactly. So the silver lining there is the people who survive it and the people who maintain that skill become higher demand later because there's such low supply. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can then charge more. So that's sort of like a silver lining to that. I just kind of mm-hmm. thought of that. But, you know, yeah. the people there's still demand for people who can tune a piano and it isn't cheap. You know, and there's still demand for people who can come and fix an old grand piano from 100 years ago. And it is right. not cheap. Right. You know, it's not going to be everybody, but I guarantee that person is making thousands of dollars in a day. Yeah, no, really good point. So maybe that's a good lesson to apply to uh, our friends in, in UX, you know, specifically in the design field. Yeah, it'll be a lot more tough. And we're definitely going to get into that into the next topic. But, um, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, being specialized. I, I When I think about automation, I don't want, I actually don't want automation when it comes to design practice or the human interaction. Yeah. I would like automation around what am I missing in my discovery procedures and discipline that mm-hmm. will mitigate the risk to my organization for releasing something because of a blind spot, a human, a human error that I'm, I'm missing. Like yeah. that's where I would like to see some help come in. How does it complement and and again when you said speed up that workflow mm-hmm. to 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 do the things that I'm you know still remain very passionate about doing so yeah. I don't want to tune a piano but I'm still going to play it right would be another, mm-hmm. another way to yeah play. and it's interesting too there because like the demand for pianos goes down because at that point you mentioned like your old uncle Bill or whatever you like he sucks at playing piano why let's get a thing but but the people who can play it really well can then charge an insane amount of money to go play at a jazz club right there's only so many right. now. Exactly. So, you know, whereas a hundred years ago, it probably a lot more, I mean, my grandpa had a piano, everybody like could play piano probably back in there, at least something, maybe a couple tunes, you know, they weren't Jelly Roll Morton or anything like, you know, but, but those people that, that could do that then also, right. They become more, more specialized as well, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, then they can go record and then they can make insane amount of monies in this new market that's been created for mass media that didn't right. exist before. Yeah, instead of playing just to the people in the room, they're now broadcasting that recording across. Exactly. Yeah, they can go on tour, they can sell records, they can make money, you know, all that stuff. So there's opportunity. It's, it sucks for the vast majority of people. <laughs> but the, the silver lining there is there's opportunity for the, the really skilled practitioners who keep it up and hone their craft. Or the people that can recognize the pattern and adapt to see where things are going, you know, a little bit. And in the case of the music industry, people who can exploit the people with the talent and take all their money. <laughs> That's also yeah. important. So. Yeah. yeah. For, for every Elvis Presley, there's a general. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Whoa. Taking it back. That's, okay. that's deep. That just took a dark turn. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's okay because we're, you know, we go into the next topic around, you know, item number two of five being pointed out, saturation. The, the yes. Huge impact of what we're seeing with shrinking teams. Um, and they're referring to it as shrinking power. I, you know. Mm-hmm. I might use some different words there, but this is really why I started reading this article going, man, is like anything going to look up going into 2024? Because this, you know, yeah, there's a lot of people 
Uh, I think different people are reporting different numbers, but just tech industry overall, you know, you're looking at somewhere between 275 to I've seen upwards of 350,000 tech professionals. We're talking, you know, people um, both entry level to senior level being laid off. And this this year, this year. Yeah. Does that sound inaccurate to you, Jeremy? Is it? Is yep. That- Overall. Well, I mean, it's obviously not just in Bozeman. <laughs> yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I mean, and there's also too, it's this interesting, like kind of market economics going on where years ago yep. you had this huge demand for basically roles that didn't exist before. Right. And so you had a very small supply of people who could do the work. And so someone said, hey, I can exploit this. I'm going to start a boot camp. I'm going to train a bunch of people who don't know how to do it, charge them a whole bunch of money, but it's going to work out for them because they're going to get jobs making 200 grand in Silicon Valley. And then eventually those boot camps, someone said, hey, I could do that. Hey, I could do that. Hey, I could do that. Then you ended up with 100 boot camps, all, all training thousands of designers every year. And then you ended up with this giant pool of people, and it wasn't sustainable, this giant pool of people that then flooded the market and the demand wasn't as high as the supply. And so someone probably likely said, the, the, the invisible hand uh, said, hey, I, I don't have to charge these people as much. I don't have to pay these people as much. I can lay people off. You know, I have enough people to pull from. You know, it's sort of like I, I use the analogy of the, uh, the the 1849 gold rush, right, where, you know, everybody went out west digging for gold. The only people that made money were the, the people selling the pickaxes and the shovels. And wow. we see that a lot, I think, with with boot camps. And so, yeah, I think I think that we flooded the market, you know, and it's going to take time for that, you know, quote unquote, correction to to level out. But I, I absolutely see over over oversupply of designers and a very low demand, especially well, yeah. the layoffs. Yeah, and I, and I also have been contributing to that too. I mean, we've all been doing this long enough where you used to come in and you'd have to do, you know, the UI, the UX, and and sometimes the actual engineering of whatever it was you were going to be releasing <laughs> because there was nobody else. And I think actually the one thing we overcorrected on specifically when it comes to the design aspect of UX as a profession is we... We really put everyone into such niche roles where you would say, oh, I'm only a design system UI designer. Like I only think about this in terms of the components of a particular brand that's given to me from an agency or I'm doing something that's very niche oriented. Um, There have been teams where I've worked on having, you know, had a background in, you know, being a traditional graphic designer and then moving into more interaction design. Um, you know, I've always enjoyed that aspect, but I've met a lot of designers coming out of um, HCI programs who have zero concern, zero interest in doing right. the aesthetics yeah. of 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 their craft. Yeah. And so again, if you take that plus all the boot camps, plus all the promises that they've been, you know, telling people about these amazing careers waiting for them, mm-hmm. um, and compound the effect of you know, what I consider to be sort of very much an open argument of the return to work versus, you know, hybrid uh, or even remote roles. I mean, you've got a perfect storm. We just spent three years telling tech professionals they could move anywhere they wanted. Our <laughs> yeah. town's been absolutely impacted. You journey from one location to a new location. Um, you know, but for a small town, all of a sudden inundated with a bunch of tech professionals who are now laid off. Um, you know, that's a huge impact. And and now you have some of these major fang companies saying, um, you know, we're not going to fire you just yet, but, you know, you're not going to be promoted. 
you're not going to have a seat at the table. You're basically going to be, you know, uh, a button pusher for whatever your particular role is. I think that's another impact here that I think people, um, I think that makes this economic situation so much more difficult than when you look at um, 2008. You know, for me, that felt like everybody knew there was a problem and it was like, how do we fix this housing crisis and endure some of the things that we were going through? Irregardless, I'm not even going to get into the politics of it. Just irregardless, it felt like there was a unity around there's a problem and we need to work together because it's kind of all sink or swim. Obviously, 2001, incredibly different impact with the dot-com crash plus, you know, the impact of 9-11. Whereas now, I mean, I still, you know, depending on who you talk to, you'll have, you know, many people say, well, I'm not even really sure we're in a recession. Right. Okay, that's fair. Like, what would you point to? Because there's a bunch of people laid <laughs> off and interest rates are really high and nobody's buying homes. Like, there, you know, there are conditions in play and I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. Um, it just feels like right now is a time of confusion. There are clear playing rules. Yeah. You have a massive amount of people looking for remote work and very few remote jobs. And, you know, yeah, if I just move my family out to a place that I wanted to be, say, from Silicon Valley, I'm probably not super pumped about moving back to Silicon Valley right now. Mm, yeah. <laughs> no. Why would you do that? Totally agree. Or Rhett. Or He's... <laughs> so, yeah. I, and again, I also think, too, I think there are, you know, and, and Jeremy, you and I have spoke a lot about this being at where we're at with, with our careers. I think the design leadership roles still have a lot to prove in terms of, you know, finding that right market fit and, you know, companies that are saying, oh, we, you know, we offloaded all of our UX or design leadership. And now we just have, you know, kind of the quote unquote worker bees, not to be disparaging we can get by without that strategic design person. Mm. And it's like, really? Well, yeah. how long? Because who's like, someone's going to be filling that gap. You know, there's been, I mean, so many great articles written about like design centric companies and tracking, you know, so you have like certain characteristics and I don't have the article in front of me, so I can't spout out numbers uh, like I just did on the other, the piano example. But uh, there's a great article about like, they track, they said, okay, these are the quality traits that we say makes a company design centric. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, without going into depth, you end up with companies like Apple and Nike and companies that are, are treating everything that they do as a design problem, right? Mm -hmm. And what they found is that they take those people and put into a bucket and then, you know, on the stock market and company value, and they take all the rest of the companies in the top 500 and they just track them and the design centered companies consistently outperform the other ones, consistently grow faster and perform better. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is science. This is like measurable. If you're an economist, you love this stuff. It <laughs> proves that having a design centered company is absolutely critical for success. So yes, I think that layoffs are happening, but I think that you know, just like in anything with innovation, AI has, has and 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 other economic factors have really stirred up the pot. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I get excited about is that truth that design centric companies, you know, um, they're going to outperform others. Mm -hmm. People will see that, and those companies are going to be the ones that are successful, and those are going to be the ones that have people who do UX who mm -hmm. are leadership thought leaders in that company. So much so where we, I, I don't think that's going to change. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't either. And I think like the other thing I think about when I think about these design-led companies is they always have really, well, they always put the customer experience first. Mm -hmm. You know, Airbnb is a good example. Nike is another good example. They, they, Apple obviously is a good example. They put the customer experience above everything else. And I don't know if it's, you know, because they're design-led or being so focused on the customer experience makes them realize that design is an important part of it. But for whatever reason, those companies that do really well do really well generally either because they're they're so focused on the customers or or because they're, you know, for whatever other reason. But I, I think that has a lot to do with it, you know, that that laser focus on being customer centric mm -hmm. and people so. prefer that. I mean, that's the thing. People just prefer companies that care about them over some yeah. company where they're just a, a you know, a number. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a great example is like Apple versus Dell or Apple versus Gateway, you know, back in the day. It's just like, yeah. clearly Apple cared more about the people and the problems versus the hardware they were trying to just hawk. And, and it took a little while, but look what but look what happened when that popped. When it actually hit, then all of a sudden you went from a company that nobody was using to, you know, massive profitability that yep. entry-level people nowadays would be like, what do you mean people didn't use Apple computers? It was like, no, it was unheard of. Yeah, <laughs> nobody did, yeah. You try to get a game for a Mac 20 years ago. That's a time, right? That's a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, and I've been seeing a lot more, especially as I'm doing and spending more time networking with other design leaders to hear what they're talking about. You know, you brought up customer experience. I think that's absolutely huge. We need to not be afraid just because it doesn't say UX or product design that it's not necessarily a fit because, you know, the customer experience is the container with which I consider UX to live within. So there's always going to be a place for me there. But then as I'm thinking about how I adapt my career, how do I maybe get into more of that CX role? And then, you know, recently connected with someone, you know, awesome outside of the Philadelphia area. And, and you know, he just took a role as, uh, you know, VP of experience design. And like you said, really looking at it from first touch point all the way through the journey oh, of yeah. the product to these different areas. And yeah, maybe it's not as creative, but... I mean, you're pretty hard to argue the business impact someone like that's going to have in an organization. Yeah. yeah. Experience design, like, uh, yeah, it's it's taking UX as, as just a piece of it. Right. You're thinking of the entire experience of, I've just purchased this all the way through to like, hey, I want to like use this thing while I'm driving my car or whatever. Like yep. you're going all the way through an entire experience. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a... Uh, a really cool growing industry. Yep. Uh, growing role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I actually, I had a really awesome interview recently with uh, Thomas Wilson, who I don't know if you know him from LinkedIn, but the guy's brilliant dude, but he's a service designer basically. And one of the things like he's been preaching for the last, I don't know how long, is, you know, this idea of product first. And we talk about commoditization in this, in this article. It speaks a lot to that, that idea that, you know, product's going to lead this thing and, and, it, and, you know, Thomas is very much against product first. I don't know that I necessarily have as many issues with product first, quote unquote, as, as Tommy Thomas does. Um, but I think the thing is that like what ends up happening is you get product manager led, product team led. And that piece is is really where we end up with a lot of these other problems. So this idea of the product first, right? Like it, it ends up being misconstrued, I think it could be product team led. Right. And I think that's where you end up with like a lot of the problems that they talk about in this article, especially around productization or sorry, commoditization. 
Right. Um, where we end up just being a commodity that like the product team can push around. And, you know, so I've heard somebody uh, say before, like the, the, the product manager's paintbrush, you know, like I know what we need. We're going to do all this work and you're, you're going to stay out of it. But to your point, the reason why I'm kind of tying this together is you don't have to have a product manager degree to become a product manager, a UX designer with a background in UX can become a product manager. And again, like when we talk about finding new roles, this is another example. You don't have to leave software. You can right. stay in software and apply those skills, those human-centered, user-centered skills to something, another job. Maybe you're not doing wireframes anymore because the robot took over and now it's you know cranking out wireframes and code, but you can take that human-centered approach and apply it in another area. To your point, Jason. You know, and so I think a lot of times UX designers see that and they say, oh, we're being replaced by product. Like, there's no reason why you can't be, quote unquote, product. Right. Right. Whether you want to go work with the professional services team or the revenue team to figure out where those gaps exist and, and how you're going to address the needs of the users. Yeah, I've heard that come up a lot. You know, people saying, well, have you thought about taking a product role? And it's like, well, I'm, I'm in a product role. It just happens to be on the creative side of <laughs> And, 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 you know, where I'm at, and it's a good segue into the, the third point they bring up around what you just mentioned, the commoditization of, you know, people designing uh, the, the conveyor belt and how companies need to scale. And what I heard you say, Jeremy, in that last bit of commentary was that my inference is the more that companies have overcorrected going from sales led to product led. I think we're seeing, we are definitely seeing a trend in the UX space where because of the ease of building out design systems and componentizing um, and really just getting rid of any sort of aspect of like bespoke um, identity, you know, we've actually taken out kind of a lot of the, the magic and some of the thought we should be putting in to, you know, being the, the PM's paintbrush. And just yeah. taking orders and, and moving forward. And I into, and honestly, I will say that the UX designer or researcher who does it does it uh, at the own cost of, of long term career scale because you know the higher up you go, if you don't adapt to continue to mm, involve or participate in the business discussions of how a company is operating, then you are raising your hand and saying, "I will just be here as a as a waiter." And I'm I'm here to take those orders, um, yep. so that, that would be a big lesson I would take from this third one. Absolutely. Let's see here. Um, you know, again, some of the impact here. You know, and I, I do see a lot of this, especially from early to mid career designers. You know, what, why why is my opinion not being respected? Why am I not being listened to? And you know, the answer is is because people you know don't often listen to mock ups and prototypes. They listen to, you know, the business impact of what it is you're doing. They listen to the data behind the problems that you're solving and, and, you know, to, to overcompensate for, you know, the beauty of your craft is great. We have a name for that. It's called being an artist and, and <laughs> sometimes it's often called starving artist. So, you know, that's a path, but yeah, I think again, you know, if you want to be in the game, then, you know, spend that extra time understanding what the needs of the business are. And then apply your discipline to how you can start to begin to solve some of those problems. And um, so, yeah, again, I, I feel like each time we make one of these jumps, going from sales led to product led, or we go from uh, bespoke design to automated design systems with a tool like Figma, which I could have never, you know, really imagined would would be doing what it's doing right now. 
um, you know, there is a cost there. Um, it does make things easier, but you know, we can't, we can, I don't think we can just hide behind the monitors. Yep. I'm with you. All right. You want to jump to the fourth one? Yeah, let's keep going. All right. So author at uh, uxdesign.cc, again, check the description. We'll be sure to post it there. Um, they bring up uh, the financial financialization, uh, a trend that they're looking for in 2024. Um, and, and they begin by talking about, you know, in a world where design is used to appease shareholders and boost stock prices, advocating for users' interests can become an afterthought. Yeah. And, you know, this one, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of writing right now on... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like integrity design, design, uh, ethical design, you know, whatever the word is. Uh, and and I think that's actually really, really good. You don't want to give people misleading, um, you know, ideas of, of what, what you're designing for. But the reality is, is we live in a in a business and a capitalist type, type environment. And mm -hmm. like, if you're working for somebody, they've hired you to do something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at every job that I've had, that job was in one way or another to provide more value for the company so that the company could be more successful. And like, even in the, the government space, I mean, people are hired to bring more value to the company, even if it's not, you know, uh, for-profit business kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I read this and just kind of thought, well, what's new? This isn't like a trend. This is just normal. Like this is how maybe, maybe the trend is that people are now aware. Oh yeah. I was going to say, my design isn't just pure wholesome, like uh, yeah, making the world a happier place. I'm actually designing something that's going to make a company more money. I'm like, well, there's no surprise. <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this speaks a lot to maybe some of the boot camp education that happens, where you're sort of taught a process. This is how you do it. This is the way to do it. And if you don't do it, you're wrong. And I I can't tell you how many times I've talked to boot camp grads who were shocked that when they got to a job, no one listened to them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, well, I'm a designer. What do you mean? Why, why were we? You have six weeks of uh, yeah. online education, yeah. right? And, and so I think this speaks to exactly what you were just saying a minute ago, too, Jason, yeah. about like having to. You have to speak the language of your business, not just business, but your business. You know, if you can't tie the work that you're doing to some bottom line somewhere, why is anyone doing it in the first place? You know, why is anyone, why is there a team? Why did, why is why are they paying a team of software engineers, product managers? I mean, I mean, the whole point is like, you're there to make money, generally speaking, right? I mean, and in theory, our job is to understand user needs, to make it as efficient, as easy to use as possible. But at the end of the day, it's to be as easy to use as possible so that I'm willing to pay for it, you know, usually, you know? Um, so I think that's something like a lot of people think it's, you mentioned this too, Jay, like art. I mean, art versus design. This is the clear right. difference. Art has intrinsic value. Design is only valuable if someone's willing to pay for it. That's right. Yeah. And if you, I'm not going to put a UX design in a museum somewhere. That's right. You know? Yeah. The, so, mo the most beautiful solution nobody signs up for is right. relevant. And I, 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 you know, they made a kind of tongue in cheek uh, comment at the beginning about the beauty of your, your Figma layers and the taxonomy with which you're naming everything. Nobody gives a shit about that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think in the same vein, you know, I was always joke with the product managers like, hey, I, I don't know if you knew this, but um, we don't actually drive revenue off PRFAQs or, you know, PRDs <laughs> or, you know, whatever spec requirement you're going to be coming up with. Are they important? For sure. They're important to get done as fast as possible so we can get the minimum thing out to the industry to hear what the, if this 
you know, solves a particular user's problem and then go from there. Everything else is, is, uh, is uh, a noise constraint in, in my opinion. But I tend to pick yeah. up, you know, and uh, the, the simple solution here is, is networking internally when you right. get a job. I mean, that is the answer. You, you, you meet with stakeholders, you have one-on-ones with them, preferably on a regular basis. You get to know them, you understand what their goals are, what their constraints are, mm-hmm. what they're being held, uh, you know, accountable for, what mm-hmm. pressures they're under, you know, and you get a sense for that. And a very simple way to, to fix this problem is to understand those people, have empathy for them, just like we would say we want to have empathy for users. And when you speak to them about the work that you care very much about, you use the language that they use and you talk to the pain points that they have and you sell to what they care about. And then you get what you want. The users get what they need and the stakeholder, the stakeholder gets what they want and they find value in your work. Yep. But I can't tell you again, like how many times I've talked to junior designers that say, I have these stakeholders, they're paying the ass. They don't listen to me. And I was like, have you ever had a conversation with them one-on-one? Have you ever set up time to talk to them outside of a meeting with 20 people? They probably don't even know who you are. Like, why would they listen to you? You know, like they don't value your opinion because you haven't valued their opinion. Right. Yeah. When's the last time? What's the hardest problem you're trying to solve right now? And, exactly. How can it help you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I was working for an enterprise organization in, in 2022 and we connected with ongoing education, which was a, func- a function of our customer success team. Um, and you might think at first glance, like, why were you doing that? And it was like, well, what, what's your biggest problem right now? Well, we can't hire enough customer success people to answer these phone calls. And so we ended up like coming to, you know, once we understood the problem, we, we ended up coming up with the idea and proved it out that one customer success person can only engage in one phone call at one time. That, that's not difficult to wrap your mind around. Yeah. <laughs> but that same customer success person can have three text conversations with a chatbot at the same time. And so they've now increased their efficiency. Like this is the design problem we're solving. You know, it's not sexy. It didn't look great in Figma. This was just a business problem we're looking to solve. And then you take it one step further. And by the end of the year, we, you know, reach out to engineering and you take that same chatbot component that's still being, you know, uh, utilized by humans. And you say, okay, now before they ever get to a human, point the chatbot to our help center articles and let that be the source of information before they even get to the human. And how many calls yeah. can we, you know, yeah. uh, you know, customers can we make happy before now we even get to a human? Now, here's the thing where I think service design and customer experience comes into play. Okay. Someone has got to be talking to users and I'm willing to bet those users say, I hate talking to the chatbot. I want a person to talk to. Yes. And, you know, generally speaking, this is, basic example, but there has to be a team that cares about what those people think as opposed to we're here to save time for the customer support team to make them more efficient and offload that work to someone else who doesn't want to do the work and they're the ones paying the bill. And so that's where you have, this is where I don't, I think a robot or AI whatever will probably never make that connection until they become like a data from Star Trek. But someone has to realize, like, we need to free up time for the support team so that when it comes time for those people who are really upset and want a person, we need to have that person available to talk to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you the problem I often see with something like a product like growth is you think about the product, you think about the features and you very rarely ever. I don't think, at least in my experience, and I'm sure some product people will probably disagree with me. Think about the people. 
the users, you know, the outcome for that, that they want, that they expect, yeah. you know, and that's where I think the human piece comes into this and uh, take it back to the first step about AI, the AI can maybe say, well, if we do this and you can, a human can do blah, 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 and make all the calculations, but they're not going to suggest something about making, still making it available for a human, still making a human available when a, when a customer is about ready to just cancel their account because they're so pissed off. Yeah. What were we going to say? Oh, I, well, what you were saying, I was just coming back to this topic. I feel like um, all of the things that we've been talking about really are saying, you know, good design is helps the bottom line of the business, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, and, and, and being a design thinker doesn't necessarily mean you've mocked up some, some interface, but it's going beyond that. And so I actually like this point. I mean, I know they, they took a negative spin on this one, but I actually think it's actually why design is so important. And you can tell when somebody was hired to design something and they were so focused on this one feature that they missed the whole, the whole experience. Well, that is the real experience. So I, I had, I just had this experience. It was a physical experience. Uh, last weekend I was selling my books at, in the, yep. the U of M, uh, um, field center. So we're talking like games that run good, you know, 20,000 people show up at like football games up there. Right. So our event did not have, well, maybe. You're 20,000 people. Right? Probably not. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. I sold a lot. You're going to some more books. I sold like 200 books. I've seen the talent mark over I sold like 200 bucks. Yeah, it's also good amount. Okay. But, but, um, but so my wife, my wife was uh, working to help welcome people in. And she was like, it, it is the most painful system you can imagine because people have bought their thing online. It's on their phone. And they go up to this system. And there's all these people ready to greet them and welcome them in. But they have to scan their thing on this thing, and it's a bad interface as far as like yeah. it doesn't work the way you think. And people like go, "Oh, whoops! What? How do I hold this?" She says, "I can't tell you how many times I wanted to take the phone out of her hands and just do that for them." And people were like, "Finally!" And they're like, "Finally!" Just saying, "Here, just show me your phone. Go through. Go through." And instead of saying, "Welcome, have a great time," right? It's this terrible experience, and the lineup of people behind and the people who work there all the time were saying, "Yeah, it's like this for football games too. It's terrible." And I'm thinking, you know, they bought this system that they have these things, these little gizmos look slick. I looked at them. They look kind of slick. They look neat. Yeah. But like the actual experience of using it, right? Complete flop. Yeah. And that to me is going back to the AI thing. You might have some AI designed this thing that looks nice, but nobody did the real user testing. I mean, my other story is from the beginning of this year, I was renting a car with a Service I hadn't used before. I can't remember the name of it. I was all in the name. It was about. It was. It was. We're not. It was. Get out our sponsorship. Guy. I was tired. I got in. I was driving to Boston late. You know, especially because I'm losing a couple hours. And I'm like, I just want my rental car. And so I go up. And and unfortunately, there were two people working there with their two kiosks, which were like a big tablet. And on on my left, and I was the only person waiting, right? And on my left side. It was two people who were not English speakers. Like they, they knew a little tiny bit of English. And on my right side, it was two people who were probably somewhere around 80 years old. Okay. So those are the two demographics trying to check out a car, right? At this point. And I'm standing there. Let's see. Let's see how this goes. Right. And (laughs) after a while, I'm like, wow, this is taking forever. What the heck's going on? And I'm watching and I'm like, and and then I start paying more attention. I start using my UX brain, my researcher brain. Happening, the ESL people they kept missing like the cues of you're, you're supposed to do this now on that screen. They would just stand. They were all, all of them, because the person who was 
the 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 the, the employee was was you know, maybe not like super communicative. It was just painful process where they would all just stand there wow. for minutes at a time thinking something was happening. And it wasn't because it hadn't gotten through. Meanwhile, with the retirees, they're trying to look at the screen and they couldn't read it. They didn't know where to touch. And so they're, you know, they didn't have this completely slick system, which I will say, and not to toot my horn or anything, I am a tech geek guy, but I, I checked my car was done in about two minutes. Okay. Like start to finish. I went through, I clicked on the things and he says, do you want the extra insurance? I said, nope. And then he says, hey, do you want to pay extra for the tolls? I said, nope. He says, well, you need to have tolls. There's tolls. And I said, well, can you just, because they were going to charge me 50 bucks for this gives out that both the retirees and the foreigners paid for these 50 bucks. Of course. And I said, yeah. I don't want that. Can you just charge me at the end for what tolls I've used? And they said, oh yeah, we can do that. And it ended up being two bucks. Oh, nice. Yeah. You were yeah. Oh, what is that? Yeah. We had both of them do. Yeah. Now, I'm just saying, like, this was a bad user experience. This is unethical. It's a dark design. pattern. It's a dark pattern. It's like, this is the test this topic. That's why this is a good story. Yeah. It's unethical business. They're already, they're making more money, but like, they're, they're doing an awful thing here. And it took, and it was so painful for me to watch from behind. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, you didn't have to buy that. But all right. Well, they did. I'm just, I mean, I'm I'm behind you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Maybe you wanted it for some reason. I don't know. It like, <laughs> well, yeah. There, there's, but there's what's real... interesting? As I go ahead, Jason. No, go for it. I was just going to make. It yeah, that, I was going to say what, what's interesting there is like them having a bad experience caused you to have a bad experience because you had to sit there and wait, God knows how long, to get yeah. a car. Even yeah. if when you went in and, and you, you when you got in the kiosk, it took you five minutes. You probably waited twenty five before while somebody fiddled their thumbs trying to like help you find more. Yeah, it was over yeah. twenty. Yeah. So that's like where I, this idea, like that customer experience piece, and I, you know, this is something I, I hear people all the time say CX is like a subset of UX. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? No, it's not. Like that UX to design that little kiosk, those people, the product first, whatever the product managers, they're just laser focused on that little thing, and it's just one touch point among many touch points that you had, right. and yeah. that little thing could be perfect. But if any of that other stuff messes up, you've you've had a bad experience. Yeah. You know? And so so many people just ignore that. Um, and I, I you know, I don't know. They don't really talk about that, I don't think, in this article, but I think this is something where, you know, you've got to focus on those things before and after. Why is somebody even coming to your tool to begin with? Yeah. And what are they doing once they leave? You know, very rarely is anybody just starting and stopping and doing everything they needed in that app. Right. And some opposite way to maybe look at that too, using the same metaphors, since everyone's probably rented a car at some point, you know, let's say the software was great and Effie is out to his car in the next 30 seconds and everything's amazing. And he, he's flying through the tolls because he, you know, already prepaid and, um, but you know, then his engine blows up because, you know, they missed the maintenance. That doesn't have yeah. to do with the experience I exactly. put forth in the kiosk. And it has everything to do with the missed opportunities in the other parts of the organization that no one person was, you know, taking a look at and saying, mm, what standard do we have to make sure these cars are getting serviced every time they're brought back? Because I don't know about you, but I've rented a few cars in my time and I'll just say I'm not super gentle with them. <laughs> you know, I kind of can. You do it with those cars. I, I, I mean, I'm going to say, like, I do consider it more of like a test drive. Uh, to, 
you know, you know, push the limits of what you know this mechanical. Let me take minivan on the road for sure. That's for sure. And uh, that's why I never bought a rental car in my life, wanting to use car life. Oh, yeah, I've never. That said, I think that's a really great point, Jeremy. It's like, you know, you could be responsible for your one little piece of the world in your little silo. And that one other thing goes wrong. You're, you failed just as much as, you know, the, yeah. the person in maintenance who didn't want to fulfill their, you know, responsibilities. So Absolutely. Yeah. And, and this, I think, goes back to, to some of this other stuff we were talking about with, with commoditization and how do you set yourself apart and become, you know, more, more, more impactful. If, if you un don't understand your business and how your business functions and all you're focused on is the UI piece, yep. you can't be valuable to the business. Then they don't have any reason to keep you around because you're not helping them in any way. So like understanding all those things and being able to speak to those in meetings and push back when it's necessary against stakeholders who might not think that way you're going to stand out, you know, you might ruffle some feathers, but at the same time, like you're, you're making a difference, I think, you know, and, and certainly yep. there's a, there's a balance there. How much do I push back or how much before I quit or something? Maybe, you know, it's hard to find a job, you know, right now, so maybe yeah. I keep the job and shut up and get paid. Yeah. But you know, still, I, I think there's that aspect of like, as you, even if you're doing UI design, you have to understand the context. Right. You have to understand why people are there to begin with. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of this again, goes back to the product first thing. Like, when you think about just the product, you ignore all the other stuff that goes on outside of the product, which can make or break the experience. Yeah. And, and maybe just to put a, a bow on this, yeah, I won't use the car rental feature anymore, but um, <laughs> you know, if you're a designer in a particular product line, you're probably alongside other peers and other areas of a product, whether it's a cloud setting or an enterprise offering or different product lines. You know, like what are you doing or thinking about in terms of how customers are either coming in or coming out of your particular area of responsibility, because those are most often, especially in a software experience world, the top areas you're gonna get the most amount of seams and data mistrust and user angst when it comes to how a user goes about, you know, uh, leveraging your product. Because there, I, last time I checked in the B2B space of which I'm a fan of, there is no one designer for an entire enterprise application. Like that, that ship is sailed right. at this point. So, you know, that, that would be, you know, something tactical to be thinking about as a designer uh, looking to improve in this next year. Are you looking two steps behind you or two steps after? And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. All right. Well, we already kind of jumped into the the, the fifth point, which is uh, user trust. <laughs> yeah, user trust. And they really had a negative tack on this. I completely disagree. You actually be beginning to agree with me on the whole. I think maybe I am. I, <laughs> I mean... I, you know, yeah, I, I really appreciate the writers and they have a lot of good links at the end for where all their sources and why they're saying this stuff. But I don't understand why they're saying like that users, user trust is, is disintegrating over, over time. I, I don't know. Maybe you guys have a different experience. I mean, I, I think our world is so connected these days. We spent so much screen time doing everything from entertainment to our jobs that the trust is being eroded because the patience continues to decrease. Yeah. My, my tolerance for the fact I go to my favorite grocery store and every time I go to check out, they have to flash an NPS rating to me is like, <laughs> is a, is a range. Right. <laughs> you, you know, I, 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 again, I'm thinking about a lot of the stuff Thomas Wilson has to say. Yeah. And, and I, and I think a lot about the experience that people have using these product, a lot of product first tools. 
Um, and when when I think about this, the first thing I come to, that comes to mind is just again, like I just said, the idea that the product is everything, and I'm just focusing on the product, and the product is the important thing. But what's important is the service that the product provides, and that service is beyond the product; it's outside the product, right? And so, as an example, you just talked about you know uh, going to the grocery store and doing the self checkout. Like people hate self checkouts; they don't like them. And you've got something like Kroger, for instance. I know there's a local Kroger that's opening a Kroger that is only self-checkout. And I can promise you I will never go to that Kroger. Really? Interesting. I will never go to that Kroger, especially if I have my kids. Yeah. You know, like I want to have someone help me check out, right? And so that product that those designers that work at Kroger are looking at, that's the the app to go buy stuff and, and add stuff to your list, all that stuff is totally irrelevant if I'm not going to go to Kroger because I don't want to use a self-checkout. You know, and so like thinking back to this, like these are the kind of stuff that I'm thinking, like the design team or maybe not even the design team, because somebody on the design team probably said this is a bad idea. But the executives are saying, right. we need to cut costs. We need to save money. We're going to we're going to get rid of all of our checkout people. We're going to we're going to put, you know, machines to check out self checkout. I went to Circle K the other day. They don't have anybody to, to check out. But you literally have to wait in line. And like people are fiddling around with the stupid machine trying to get their drink. I do like each verification. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Like, Yeah, I, that's a great question. I have no idea. You probably have to wait 45 minutes to find somebody, the one person that works at Circle K yeah. now because they they got rid of everybody. So this is sort of the thing where I think you'd erodes trust. This is the kind of stuff they're talking yeah. about. Like the business has put value on productivity. Going back to the financial piece of this, they've, they're ignoring the customer experience and the user experience and it erodes the trust. And, you know, this, I mean, think about like all the social media apps stealing our data and, and, and they talk a lot about, uh, you oh. know, cyber uh, security and things like that. You know, Facebook with the the this was this was technically a couple of years ago, but with the what was that the thing with the data breach and they or the Cambridge Analytica they found out they were stealing everybody's data, like that kind of stuff is I think what they're they're thinking about here, like eroding trust yeah. and and really oh, focusing on the business. So I don't know that that's kind of my take. I don't know. I, I don't I don't see this as negative necessarily, but well, I, I would say patience is down, which erodes trust, and there's so many different people doing so many different offerings that. I have no loyalty for your product or service. Like you screw me once and we're probably not doing business anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to send, you know, spend all your time, uh, you know, trying to give me back over promotional emails for the next three to six to nine months, eventually probably giving me a free, you know, trial. And yeah, I might come back for free, but the minute, you know, you erode that trust again, my patience is like, nope, I'm done. Uh, yeah. you know, again, so again, great, great call out to the, the customer experience aspect yeah. oh. of, of applying it to product. I think the one, the one paragraph in this that, that I was thinking that, you know, I really resonated with is, is all the, I, and here's how I would put it. I, I would, I would say that, um, technology has made everybody a liar because <laughs> you have to click on a thing saying I agree at some point in order to use it. Right. And like, Do you really agree? And, and, and they've changed it. And so you're supposed to read this big old terms and conditions that might be 30 pages long. You're supposed to read this as a regular person who's just trying to wake up and text somebody and your phone's telling you, in order to use this phone, you now have to agree or you right. can't use your phone anymore. And so we've all become liars because we've all said, I have read it I love how you put that. and agree. And so this is the unethical part of all of this. I, I remember I was doing some, some, some sleuthing. Uh, this was, I don't know, a little over 10 years, like 12 years ago. 
And I was like, what is my internet company really gathering from me? What, what are their terms and conditions? Well, that's like, a bad idea. What so I pulled it out. I pulled it out and it was like, uh, <laughs> it was maybe four inches tall and it was an accordion fold. It opened up to maybe 20 inches wide and it was maybe size eight bond. And I read through maybe nine. And I read through and I was reading, reading, reading. And I got to the part of like my data privacy and what they're doing with it. And I yeah. underlined and read, we have the right to gather every piece of data that you've put in, in online, credit card, address, oh, for sure, names, contacts, phone numbers, all this stuff. We have the right for all that, to gather all that information and to sell it to whomever we want. Mm -hmm. So I called up the, the internet company. I got on the phone with their customer service and I said, hey, I'd like to opt out of your your great terms of agreements, please. What are you talking about? Like this woman had no idea. I was like, I'd like to opt out, please. That was like the first part I, like, I ever called. I was like, <laughs> would you please? I don't know what he's ever done before. I would like to opt <laughs> oh, out. I, I do not agree to your terms and conditions. She says, oh, let me let me go look into this. She puts about all like minutes, minutes later. She comes back. She says, you can opt out. I said, oh, thanks. Yeah, I was oh, expecting. She says, yeah, I, fi I found out how to do it. Here, you're opted out now. I said, well, thanks. And I was like, see, look at me. I did this thing. <laughs> awesome. I opted out. And then, oh, the next month, I kid you not, it was within a month. Yeah. I get another thing in the mail. It's like our updated terms and conditions. <laughs> and I'm automatically on back in. <laughs> and now I have to call again. To opt out. I'm like, and, and that was the moment where I was like, this is uh, crazy. It's a losing battle. Yeah. I give up. This is exactly what this article's talking about, man. That's what it's talking about. I think about. that's it. I think that's it exactly. Yeah. It's a deceptive, you know, and it's like, I think we've 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 now come to become numb to it, and I think mm -hmm. I, I they they called it out in the article. I don't know what that means for designers per se. Like I don't ever want to be. A, well, I mean, I think it's like where, that, where do you put it? I mean, I'm just gonna say we should blame the lawyers. They're clearly the ones at fault for all of this. And um, but no, yeah, if you're if you're inserting that blocker, you know, especially. For instance, you know, I like to play games with my kids on on the Xbox, and every time a major update, the only thing we want to do at that point in time is play the game we've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. right. And to sit there and go through the online screen of, I have no idea what I'm signing up for, but I'm going to say yes as fast as I possibly can, I actually think is intentional on their part, because they, they probably don't like you reading the TOCs. Yes. Absolutely intentional, like without a question. I mean, if they wanted it to be readable, they would write it differently. They would highlight things. They would summarize it for you. They would make the font bigger. Great. They would make it as long. The LDR. We yeah, are. exactly. Oh, okay, fine. I agree to that. Yeah, fine. yeah. We're gonna own your soul, your firstborn children, and your dog. Um, <laughs> and if you opt out, uh, we take them all. We're just gonna renew it automatically next month. Yeah, yeah. That must have been really frustrating. For I just, I, you know what? It was this great moment because i just realized that it was futile you would never resistance is you know dude yeah i have a gun to do i have and i said after things i need to I need to focus on other things but and, and that reason i think to a segue to i think there was a lot of negative trends but i feel like all three of us have seen a lot of good trends and yeah absolutely I would love to hear, I mean, for each of us, like, what do you think? Oh, you're going to make me in on a positive. Yeah, we should end on a positive. Yeah. Okay, I could do that. I'll, I'll, I'll plus one. <laughs> okay. So each of us would think of something positive that you think is a trend that you've seen over this last year and what you think is coming up. So whoever wants to go first, I know. You guys go first. I didn't actually private public. Oh, I got it. 
Well, I have an idea. If you want me to go, I can go. Yeah. So again, I, you know, oh, go, ahead. Go, it, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I thought you said oh, you did that I, one. Go ahead. I think, you know, so number one, you know, I've, I've mentioned I'm in between roles. I'm not panicking. I've seen this before. Um, you know, I always joke with people, um, you know, if I never found another UX job again, then we're all in much bigger trouble, you know, regardless, because there's oh. probably some some really bad things on the horizon. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I'm the world's best UX designer, but I have been doing this long enough. I've seen these trends, the ups and the downs, uh, you know, uh, the, the gutters and the strikes, uh, quote the uh, parlance of our time. But um, I don't think I've ever seen a time where even with all the challenges and mistrust still from businesses when it comes to investing in the UX space, I've never seen more opportunities for the UX profession. Um, it used to be a complete afterthought or get someone from digital marketing to do the product design or vice versa. And, and I think that the case for why UX is needed for companies that are looking to make serious impact in their whatever their space is, is settled. Like there is now, now we can start to think about, okay, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah. Who do we need on the team to make that happen? Those yeah. are all negotiable, yeah. but I can remember very early on, you know, people even saying really archaic things like, well, I don't think we even need a design. Like we'll just, yeah, yeah. we'll let like someone in, you know, accounting come up with it or whatever. It is, it is. I, I would resonate with that hundred percent. This isn't my, my thing yet, but I just okay. resonate with what you're saying. Thank you. That, yeah, I, I absolutely, that's my experience too, that. That at this point, anyone I talk to in the tech space gets it. They right. get that UX is needed. They have a seat at the table. It's important. We got to pay attention. Now, what they think that means, or if they know how it works, that's another question. Yes, <laughs> that's a, that's a matur that's a maturation show. Yeah, yeah. So that that's what I would contribute. Yeah, that's. The I knew you were going to make me be positive on this. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was definitely the negative one coming into this. Um, yeah, like, Nancy, man, sky's falling, and it's an election year. Can't wait. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what so, do you think, Jake? So yeah, well, so I don't, I don't know. I, I'm going to preface I'm saying I, have, I have absolutely no idea. I'm not going to try to. I, I hate giving predictions and things, but I can tell you what I think. I think that the businesses that have foregone the customer experience, focusing on that, focusing on users, and remove those UX designers to replace them with product teams that generally are just order takers from the business side. I think a year from now they will be very sorry that they did that. And I think the positive there is that they'll have, they'll come crawling back <laughs> to UX, and I think we might see some. I wouldn't call it a resurgence. I think I think there was a correction, and it was probably because we hired way too many people post pandemic. For sure. And I think we saw layoffs. It isn't because people don't value UX. I think it's because they probably overhired to begin with. They probably realized that. If you look at the numbers, they're still higher than they were five, ten years ago. Absolutely. So I think that's a positive. So I think like a year from now, what you're going to see is that they probably laid off too many people. And you're probably going to see an uptick again. That's my thought. They're going to probably realize like, hey, my NPS score's gone down or whatever stupid metric they use. Uh, right. But, you know, these are all, these are all, you know, uh, these are all, um, you know, indicators that are, what is that? Not leading indicators. Um, they're, what's the opposite leading indicators? Why am I drawing a blank right now? I can't, whatever. Anyway, lagging indicators. <laughs> Sorry. Like, you know, NPS and all these things, they're all lagging yeah. indicators. And that's what these businesses care about. And they're not going to realize they've gone down until it's already down. So it's going to take time for that to happen. And I think the silver lining is that it will be to our benefit in the long run yeah. uh, because they'll realize that that was actually valuable and we we missed the boat or we, we you know, 
we we cut off our own you know hand to save our own toes or whatever that whatever that uh, whatever that yeah, that thing is. <laughs> and we call him down thunder. We're gonna put a we're gonna have to put a pin in that one. You know, but it's also interesting because the minute you said that, I was like, well, what about Airbnb saying they don't need any product managers anymore? Um, you know, I think there's a yeah. Well, I'll to that. I'm looking at it like a, ma- a macro level, right? I mean, yeah. for the most part, companies aren't doing that. And there are certainly, you know, at the micro yeah. level, there are companies that are, uh, I think, doing it correctly. And they're going to do fine, you know? Um, and I don't know. I, I can't really say. I don't know. Did Airbnb lay off people? They probably did because they yeah, probably- yeah, there was some kind of troll clickbait article that someone put out that, you know, the CEO of Airbnb, you know, was making an argument for why, you know, not as many product managers were going to be needed. And I'm like, yeah, you're like, you're renting houses for the weekend, but you're probably right. Yeah, right. And, and so I think like in that case, though, like they didn't get rid of the product management function. They just, right. I, if I'm not just mistaken, they'll combine the product, the marketing product, product marketing managers, product managers, the product marketing right. managers in theory understand the users better because they're out there talking to me yeah. versus right. the product managers who just get a list of requirements from someone else. <laughs> so it's like, why are we doing both? So, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, but. Yeah, yeah, no, a good point. And I would just say that, the PM industry has the same problem the UX industry does. Yeah. At any point, at any time in your career, you reside yourself to taking, you know, orders like a waiter instead of acting like a doctor. You mm-hmm. are telling the company you are replaceable. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 the news I think you could well you you've been through layoffs. I've been, this is my second yeah. time getting laid off. The thing I I think I've realized, and I just want to stress I'm again. I'm not proud. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, what I, what I want to stress is that these companies yeah. couldn't care less about you. So oh, sure. do what you got to do and change your your title, get a new job, learn a new skill, do whatever you need to do to be to be valuable to somebody else. You know, um, like, I, I mean, we, we both post on LinkedIn quite a bit. I, I started posting on LinkedIn about a year and a half ago, a year ago, simply because I wanted to grow my network for when I got laid off again. And well, behold, like literally a year to the date almost, it happened. Um, yeah. It's going to happen to you. And whether or not it happens next year, two years from now, five years from now, at some point you'll be laid off. Do whatever you can do to be prepare ready. yourself and be ready for it. Get your yeah. insurance you know, ready so you can you know, cash that yeah. check when it comes time. Don't try to go take out insurance policy when it's already too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, yeah good point. It, it is going to happen and it has almost... Most of the times it has nothing to do with who you are as a person. Oh. You, I think you said it right, you know, yeah, and yeah, I'm not even going to add to it because yeah. I, I, I not even it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. To be diverse and be, be prepared. Uh, yeah. Positively. Positively. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, as a, as a shift in, in the positives, I, I think, uh, the, what I've seen happening this year with, with AI has just been really, I mean, I've, I've, been a part of seeing, you know, like some ideation around AI, like even five years ago. Uh, so it's been around, but this, this year has been such a boom. And I think every company is starting to think, okay, what, what are we doing or missing out and start to think about how to incorporate it. And the thing that I think is going to happen this year is there's going to be a lot of market disruption, which is, it's going to be interesting. Yep. Um, and, and, and what I think is going to happen is some huge, huge Goliath companies that have been around forever doing things are now going to get disrupted by these small companies doing AI. And and they're either going to buy up those small they'll, companies. They'll buy them up. I mean, they'll buy them up or they'll get disrupted. <laughs> yeah. 
or they'll be doing their own AI thing in parallel so that people always want to trust the big collateral companies more than the smaller startups. That's right. So, but however you look at it, there's going to be disruption. And I think the consumer, the user of all this is is going to be the one that benefits. I think it's actually going to be a really cool. Yeah, thing. more choice, more, op- more, yeah. more options. Uh, I think it's just going to be, like if you look at like Time Magazine's uh, top 200 innovations of the year, there's some really cool stuff that's come out this last year. Really cool stuff. And, you know, the AI section was maybe, you know, 15, 20 things out of out of the whole 200. I think the AI influence is going to be like half of that literature in the end of next year. I think there's going to be, maybe it'll still be in healthcare. It'll still be like a car technology, but there's going to be AI driving something. It's going to just, I don't even know all the ramifications because I'm focused on one industry right now. Yeah. That's, that's my thinking. I'm pretty, I'm pumped to see it. Yeah, no, well, yeah, and, and it's like any other, it's like the internet, like people are going to have to figure out what it means and then how to apply it for their use cases to solve a particular problem um, in, in their area that they've been making business on. And I do think it'll be huge. I mean, a, a friend of ours in engineering just signed up with a medical company that's doing uh, AI-based teledoc um, services. Um, you know, with access to your medical records and the ability to infer, you know, symptoms and, and provide treatments. I'm aware of another startup right now, uh, not going to name names because hopefully, uh, you know, it's not my place to say so, but doing um, AI generated call center help for financial institutions. So being like, when's the last time you called a bank and why? Well, it's probably because you just yeah. wanted to know your account balance or send a bill pay. Well, what if you were to voice authenticate and do all those transactions without ever having to wait and listen to really awful music? I mean, so there are some really, and those are real world examples. Like that's stuff my parents would do. And they're, you know, they're definitely not, you know, they want adopters. Yeah. 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 So, yeah well, I think tying it all, tying it all back to the very beginning of the conversation where we yeah. talked about the record players killing the piano industry. Look at the opportunity that came out of the, of, of the music recording industry post record yes it sucked for the piano for the piano manufacturers but look at the opportunity and all the evolution from there from records to tapes to cds to dvds to down mp3s and digital music and now anybody can produce and and distribute just like us yeah literally any knucklehead can record something and put it on the internet for anybody to go download that's incredible that's incredible right i mean that is like the silver lining like Yes, AI sucks right now, but just think about what's going to happen for your kids and your grandkids. And you might not experience it, but yes. hopefully, I don't know, I got the little gray in my beard, I'm getting kind of old. But, you know, <laughs> hopefully my kids benefit yeah. from this and my grandkids benefit from this, unless the robots take over and kill us all. <laughs> and then we don't have to worry about finding new jobs. <laughs> then we don't have to worry about it anyway. Hey, you know, if they make us their slaves, they're still going to provide us enough enough food to eat to survive, oh, right? Oh, uh, we're we're going to have like a, a roof over our head. Yeah, you know, and uh, <laughs> we won't be worried about work. You know, we won't have a mortgage anymore. That's for sure. That flight of the Concord song about the robots. Uh, <laughs> they get the I don't know. Have you have you have you heard that one, Jeremy? Um, I well, I'm familiar with the flight of the Concords, but I don't remember. I don't remember that song. Oh, you guys gotta give it a listen uh, after the after this. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't even thought about flight of the Concords in probably 20 years, man. Oh, they're so funny. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I, I guess that kind of brings us up to. Uh, up to the up to the place that we uh, could call it. We, I'd say so. That was a good discussion. Ended positively. Yeah. yeah, Eric. Thanks for having me, guys. This was fun. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And um, I guess thanks for coming on my show. Too. 
<laughs> well, yeah. So I guess for our listeners, um, how, how do people learn more about you if they're too lazy to look in the description? Yeah. So you can check me out at beyonduxdesign.com. Uh, you can, uh, you can, you can find me on LinkedIn. I post literally, well, not literally every day, Monday through Saturday. I post Monday yep. through Saturday. E episodes come out every uh, Tuesday. Um, I'm, I'm launching a book. I don't know if you guys saw that, but I have a book. You can go check that out at beyonduxdesign.com slash book. It's very much an, an evolution of the podcast where, uh, we, we talk about all of the, the soft skills and the things that they don't really teach you in school. It's uh, Beyond UX Design, Mastering Your Craft Beyond Pixels and Prototypes. Um, I also have a new thing I do where I'm uh, uh, going through cognitive biases every Friday. You can check that out at cognitioncatalog.com uh, and uh, join me in, in learning a bunch of stuff about cognitive biases uh, every Friday. Awesome. You also That's do some really great AMAs as well, which is something that uh, Effie and I are are looking to get going in our relatively new podcast career. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I can't take credit for that. Uh, Chris Wynn on LinkedIn actually invited me to one of his oh, AMAs. Sweet. And uh, yeah, so he was doing them. Um, but yeah, if you guys ever want to do an AMA, man, I'm down. We, we, we probably should. We uh, I have no idea how to do it. I don't know the technology. I don't know. You probably need some kind of oh, software. Oh, no, but yeah, see, well, yeah, you and I are going to have to connect on uh, some of those. They'll figure it out. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, Jeremy, been great to have you. You know, anyone on, on your side of the fence that in um, hearing about us, um, we don't have as many projects going on, um, but we do try and release every Tuesday. And, and you can learn more about our podcast uh, by visiting uxberts.info, um, where we are pretty up to date with what we're talking about. And yes, if you're on LinkedIn and you find Jeremy, I'm like one degree away most days. So uh, <laughs> please feel free to reach out and connect with us. But yeah, otherwise, super awesome uh, experiment. Uh, can't wait to see what's going to happen for this next year. The sky's not falling; it's looking up, yeah, and right. uh, you know it's kind of yours to to work through. That's right. So, all right. I guess with that, we'll cut it. Yeah, I just want to make it a great, so you get a better experience for all. <laughs>